Welcome everyone to the Punisher podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial voice of the Marvel Cinematic Community. My name is Matt and joining me as always is Pete. Hello, Pete. I'm not like you people. I can do things you can't do. Whatever that makes me, it makes me. The Punisher podcast by Fantastic Geek for episode 209, Fluster Cluck, is sponsored by Fingertip Tony's. A shot of identity theft in the palm of your hand. Pete, so glad that you said that carefully. So glad to be talking this Wednesday. Some Punisher goodness. Can't believe there's only four episodes left. Pete, at the end of next week, we'll be done with the series. Looking ahead to do a uh, season two recap, but still plenty of episodes to come. Matt, if you can believe it, we will watch, well, you will watch. I've seen Star Trek 204 uh, that everybody else, including yourself, gets tomorrow night. Can't wait to talk about that with you all on Saturday. Uh, we'll have God friended me back before you know it. Renewed for season two, so going nowhere, thank goodness. But Matt, take us to the recap. It's the morning in Amy's trailer, and Frank approaches carefully, seeing a shotgun blast. He sees Madani and Kurt asleep and is quickly told by Amy that Madani wants to sell Frank out. He drowns his sorrows in some whiskey and wonders if Madani really is there to take him in. He used to think he was like everyone else, but now he realizes he was always this way. Madani says this all must end, but who can do it? DHS? NYPD? No. Frank needs to be what he's meant to be. Credit show that the episode is written by showrunner Steve Lightfoot and Ken Christensen and directed by Sally Richardson Whitfield. Back into the episode, Billy and Dumont are intimate. Intercut is his crew decimating a drug den with bloody zeal. Dumont notes that this can't last forever, but they make plans for afterwards. She dreams of going anywhere together after the men in masks finally get enough cash and drugs. But Billy needs to resolve things with Frank. As the crew grows, Mook looks a little grabby with a lady. Later, Mook is offed by Frank. Frank uses Mook's thumb and Mook's phone to find a picture of the lady and her bar employer. He ultimately shows her the picture on Mook's phone. He's got Mook's thumb to unlock it, too. She's ready to talk. Their base is called Valhalla, and they're off the rails. Frat house BS is turned up to 11. Hey, look for a warehouse north of 14th. Frank drops the thumb off the bar and walks. Goons follow him, then suddenly he's behind them. They tell him that there's a bounty on his head. There's one of him and six of, well, six bullets later, five are dead and one is ready to talk. Elsewhere, Anderson Schultz is talking with Pilgrim, who wonders if he's placed the wrong faith in his new golf club and maybe Pilgrim. Radical steps might be required, set a bounty on Castle and Amy. Later, son Anderson is talking to son David, talking about blaspheming language, dad, and actions, son. Is Anderson concerned about his son's happiness? Dad weaves a tale of God, delivering on faith. Elsewhere, Pilgrim enters a swanky, empty bar. The only other patron is Danny, who has heard of Pilgrim's reputation. Pictures of Castle and Amy are put down. Pilgrim wants them. So where is he from? He leaves and Danny calls someone, saying that he was visited by a ghost. Later, Danny calls Pilgrim, asking him to stop by the restaurant. And indeed, at the restaurant, Pilgrim arrives with someone who wants to see him. 
The gangster offers Pilgrim a good drink, though the man of God declines. The gangster has a million-dollar question. Twelve years ago, Pilgrim left with money for a buy and hasn't been seen from since. Pilgrim explains it was a bad alternator, then bar trouble, then a fight, then jail, then redemption from a man doing God's work. Pilgrim has gone from hell on wheels to heaven sent. The gangster prepares for Pilgrim to have a beatdown or worse. Elsewhere, Frank, Curtis, and Amy are trying to triangulate Billy's gang. In Amy's trailer, she and Curtis talk about his service. Are they both living the life they wanted? She wanted to do marine salvage, finding treasure under the sea. The only problem is she can't swim and has never been to the ocean. As for Frank, she says it's all for him. They're all the staff. Curtis leaves to go talk to his group. She wants to come, but Kurt won't let her. He leaves, then she does too. She walks the streets of the big city, ending up in apartment 2A, seeing gal pal Shan in an apartment that in no way looks like a redress of a Jessica Jones apartment. Amy updates Shan about the deaths of the other youths and is ready to hand over cash for a vague exit strategy. Danny's goons search the doors while Amy hides. In the utility closet, she's trapped and the head goon is ready to fire. She steps out while, intercut, Frank mows down even more baddies. The head goon's attention is split and she disarms him, pausing for a second. She knows if she takes a gun from a man, she's got to use it. She does, and the head goon is left screaming. She is stunned that she killed him. Frank takes the gun from her and says, no, blam, he killed the man. Back at Sean's apartment, Frank and Amy break down the door. Amy takes her bag and knocks her friend down. Elsewhere, Curtis is holding that meeting, telling his group of vets that he's got them because of what they have in common. He says Jake's faith in the group in Curtis was abused. The veterans are happy to help find Billy's crew. Meaning over, Curtis takes a call from Frank, who's found the trailer empty. Curtis asserts his independence, but Frank shares information about the $5 million contract. Elsewhere, cut to Billy in Madani's apartment. He searches her things, finding his journal. Later, she returns to, leaving her gun in the bedroom and a file on the counter. The camera stays close on her, and Billy reveals himself out of the bedroom, gun in hand. He ponders the commitment she had in them. He also wants answers. She'd like another drink first, though the backup gun she kept in the cupboard is gone. He rages about what Frank has done to him and what he does not know. He's told he sold out everyone and everything he ever cared about, all for money and status, and Madani isn't lying. He notes that at least she has her memories and leaves. He returns to Dr. Dumont's apartment, saying he deserves more for all he's done. Dumont is upset he saw an old flame, but is told not to worry. She reminds Billy he's so special, and Frank has given both of them a second chance. Later, Dumont calls Madani. At Dumont's apartment, knock-knock, it's a stunned Madani at the door. The not-so-good doctor notes that all the blame and fear Madani must feel sure must be a burden, and maybe Dumont feels that way too. After all, she treated Billy for all that time, but, you know, hasn't seen him lately. At least Dumont knows Frank Castle's the real bad guy, right? Madani suggests that she has greater insight, and Dumont asks her to stay for some wine. The episode closes with Frank and Amy walking and reflecting on the latest shootout. Is this all there is now, being dead or alive? What's left, Billy than the Schultzes? Amy says this is a total fluster cluck. Pete, let's talk some baddies in this episode. Let us start, as we so oftentimes do, talking about Billy. Well, 
the reign of terror that he's embarked upon here, Matt, with what I lovingly refer to uh, later um, or, or now as a blood splatter love montage. Um, perhaps the most graphic thing in the history of Marvel TV, all told. Certainly by virtue of the montage, it being both bloody murder and drugs and sexy time action. Um, yes, probably the most TV MA that we've seen out of Marvel Netflix. Um, amongst the other things, I am impressed with the scar makeup because each time he reaches for her, uh, her Dr. Dumont's back scar, it, it's a really well-designed prosthetic because it makes me hurt Pete and, uh, I'm not in the scene. Yeah. And... I'm just aching for a little bit more exposition on Dr. Dumont there. Um, Billy's pretty straightforward and simple at this moment. He wants revenge on uh, Frank. He's, uh, you know, looking to gather the wealth and the status that he's lost through the, uh, the, whatever we want to call it, Frank did to his face, the defacing of, of Billy Russo and hence the jigsawing, the jigsawification of the character put back together. Um, but to have that sequence intercut between um, Billy and his group going after these drug dealers and being with uh, Krista Dumont and talking about some kind of future, something we have to expect will never come to pass. Well, certainly what both Billy and Dumont don't know is that after this episode, there's only four to go. And it certainly is my expectation that we're going to get definitive closure or largely definitive closure on this story arc, whether it's Billy in prison or Billy dead, Dumont in prison or Dumont dead or both of them on the run. Maybe Billy and Dumont go off to uh, the Gulf of Mexico and help Andy Dufresne sand a boat. I don't know, but it certainly is my expectation that we're going to get resolution sooner than not. And uh, if nothing else, Pete, I guess that's a good launching off point to talk a little about the increasingly weak-willed Dumont, who also is is a naughty person. She's complicit in all of this. And where her goals early on were noble now if she doesn't know that billy's committing murder she's got to have some idea that it's going on and uh hey do what you want to do in the bedroom as long as you're not hurting another person i think we can agree upon that but other or, people or in their case asterisk hurting someone without their express permission well that that's what i said you know, that's that's truly what I mean in terms of, you know, doing what you're going to do. But um, it's when Billy leaves the bedroom that people who have not, uh, you know, been given a safe word get hurt. I continue to be a little surprised at the trajectory that Dr. Dumont is on just in terms of and again, plenty of episodes to change this trajectory, but as a character, she's just really gone from this 
you know, well-rounded character who's uh, smart in control, things of that sort, to just really this like, I don't know, it's like this this whimpering girlfriend type, and you know, he's so mean, but I don't know what to do, but I love him. I mean, it's kind of very. She's gone from three dimensions to two almost. Again, maybe I just can't see around the curve of the arc to see, oh, there's going to be this redemptive thing. But boy, I hope that in these next four episodes, it's not just, you know, hey, Billy, you and me go down in a blaze of glory and that she's been kind of seduced by the bad man. And when you add in that really tense scene between her and Donnie late in this episode, I think it gives an added layer. It is, and it's... It is Dumont in this episode who is picking up on a, or Dumont rather, who is expressing concerns as, you know, is there another woman? Have you seen Madani? And then, you know, it, it it's not a particularly overplayed moment, but kind of like later on when, when Madani says, oh, he was in my apartment, I think we're meant to get a little implication there from D- Dumont's point, or at least an inference as to her feelings to say, Ooh, is she feeling threatened by this woman? Which again, like, you know, we've, we've been over this type of story before in many other TV shows and whatnot. Do we need to have it here in 2018 where super smart professional law enforcement woman and super smart therapist. Now we're going to fight over a boy. I think it's realistic but at the same time, we watch these shows not so much for the realism, gritty though it may be at times, but for the things. I mean, Frank says it in the beginning of the episode. He can do things these other people can't. Um, yet here he is struggling while all these other bad people are doing what they do. Pete, there's a line of Billy's uh, at a certain point basically saying, you know, the world owes him so much. He's meant meant to get more than this. He's supposed to get more than this. And I think that that's a sentiment uh, certainly reflected by what you call in the notes the Valhalla Toxic Masculinity Society, which seems to be only growing with uh, toxic, masculine, angry castoffs of society. Yeah, testing out the merchandise, you know, the uh, barmaid we see later in the episode who showed up for uh, a good time, doesn't want to enjoy the company of this man, and that's not a good enough answer. Um, And it puts Billy in the strange position of, oh, I got to tell my guy to, to calm it down, even though... I'm completely out of control in leading this out of control group of guys who rob uh, drug dealers. If nothing else, it certainly is a reminder that story wise, as the group grows, it's also kind of building up story steam in terms of the climactic showdown. I'll catalog in a little bit, Pete, the number of climactic showdowns that we can expect in the next four episodes, but (laughs) that's a different segment Uh, on to Pilgrim here for whom I think we have a better understanding as we start to learn a little of his past and a little of his own journey. Um, Having come from, we can assume, another version, an earlier version of a toxic uh, masculinity society. And, uh, you know, we've talked about sympathy in the past and lack of sympathy. In his little brief story here of his past and the alternator and the car and the bar and the fight and the jail and all that, 
a little sense of a man who has tried to straighten his life out. Irony of ironies, Pete, he doesn't know that he's on a worse path or equally bad path now, but we, the audience, sure do. I really want this glimpse we've been provided into his past. This guy left with $1 million of what I can assume is white supremacy uh, biker guy's money to go make a buy. And yeah, you know, 12 years ago, his, uh, his alternator on his truck breaks. He winds up in a bar. He kills a man. He nearly dies. Uh, who was it that uh, came to him and redeemed him? And now they'll inherit the earth, Matt. And, uh, you know, we, we learn so much about him, though he doesn't speak much. Um, from the other character there, uh, Cusack, and uh, it's fascinating. And uh, I look forward to the fascination boiling over, of course, into brutality. Yeah, it's an interesting story and one somewhat curiously presented just with dialogue, no flashback, no intercut this, no nothing beyond there. It does make me slightly concerned. Are we... You know, are we at a point here where it is all just tell? I mean, not literally all. I mean, there's big gunfights and blood splatters and action set pieces in this episode. But I do get a little wary when secret characters past is revealed and we're not going to show you any of it. But time will tell on that. Pete, we get a little here of uh, Anderson Schultz, uh, who he he has the good kind of blaspheming you know where you curse at your golf club which in his view is different than that stuff his son is doing um another character who we're gonna have to learn a whole lot about or see more from in the next four episodes yeah corbin bernson though they've barely sprinkled him in these first nine episodes um would seem to have been in just the right amount um is he the guy that save pilgrim certainly has to have the upper hand over him pretty much implies that hey your wife your children you know you need to get back to them you need to finish up here call in your old friends put the bounty out we'll take care of it and then has a really pushy conversation with his closeted uh politician son Yes, Pete, I would agree that we are meant to assume that it was Anderson Schultz who somehow plucked Pilgrim out of his lowest point, his solipsistic existence, Pete, to use one of these old philosophy words here, um, and and offer him a path back up. Uh, it's It's a serviceable enough explanation, but we are living, Pete, in this post-Daredevil Season 3 age where... Wouldn't have wouldn't it have been neat to do a twenty minute flashback of of or five minute or three minute or whatever it is to do a flashback of Pilgrim's time in jail of a of a a, a, a wig wearing Corbin Burnson comes along and says hey let me give you a hand up but we don't get that Pete for whatever reason we don't get that no and in a in an episode of some heft while there's been a little bit of repetition to some of the previous episodes um, that this is some of the newer stuff and this menace gets brought fully into view who is really directing whom and how 
I think is important to establish. Speaking of establishing things clearly, Pete, I watched this episode very carefully. Okay. I was, I was, I was interested to meet Danny who, uh, at first appears to be a bar patron then perhaps the bar owner or running the bar, whatever it is, Danny. Oh, the bar. Okay. We get some story stuff with him, uh, when, when Pilgrim returns to the bar and there's the reveal of, uh, of Cusack and all that, but, Honest to goodness, Pete, I thought that Danny was one of the bounty bad guys, particularly when we're in Sean's apartment building. Uh, I was conv- I was I, I was just sure that it was him leading the attack squad alpha, uh, only to be not dead back at the bar. So, any thoughts there about Danny slash those in the bounty bad guy world? How about the ones that Frank so easily guns down in an alley after he dropped the thumb off in the shot glass in the in the other bar um, and then kills that guy there? Um, I think where we've praised this show with the blocking, the fights, some of the shootouts, um, it felt like. Hey, uh, we're going to do Walking Dead style in camera violence in this episode. It's going to be gratuitous and there's going to be splatter onto the camera. It's going to be great, but it's not going to be that good. Well, Pete, at least the episode was redeemed by an all new story take, which is uh, Frank protecting Amy, Amy on the run, Schultz's goons after Amy, Curtis leading a group uh therapy session uh dr dumont dealing with billy and madani trying to fit it all together so otherwise it was completely brand new stuff (laughs) well sean was a new character matt somebody from amy's past who dimed her out to these bounty hunters bad sean that's not sean sean s-h-a-n yes maybe short for shannon but then that would be shan i don't know pete i know that sean unique name unique outlook on life can't trust her and gets a knee to the gut for her troubles and she deserved it pete last but not least the uh the the tattoo wearing i would say hypnotically performed kusak who i don't know was named in this episode but uh there was just something about his short time on screen that worked as a villain mind you bad guy Worse tattoos, even worse company, but a really interesting presence on screen. Yeah. Uh, talking about Pilgrim, uh, you know, being the, uh, the, the loudest mofo, the m- most garrulous mofo, you know, uh, just walking us through the history between the two of them rolling up the sleeves here, other thugs entering the room. And we leave at that moment of highest tension, which you have to imagine we're only going to come back to. Well, Pete talking about coming back to things, let's talk some theories now. Okay. And are you sitting down, Pete? Always. Are you sitting down dear listeners? If you're driving the car, you might want to pull over because I have an earth shattering series of questions for Pete here. Pete, will we ever see a Frank and Billy showdown? How about Frank and the Schultzes? How about hashtag justice for Amy? This might not be Marvel Netflix bloat, but this is a supersized two-foot hot dog that feels like a whole lot of middle. I agree with everything that you're saying. Um, you know, if 
if not for some of the more sensational things in this episode, it really did feel kind of drawn out. And even then, like the Billy Madani scene as tense as that is, I think it was like two minutes too long. It was interesting, Pete. We've been through all this Marvel Netflix and, you know, we've watched other episodes and other seasons of other things that we've podcasted where you realize you're just in kind of the wandering middle and they're really playing things out for the big winter, for, you know, the big winter finale in two weeks. So this episode's going to be about something else or, you know, things of that sort. This was not a boring episode, unlike some other Marvel Netflix mid-season points. High action, I care about the characters, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But as we've joked about at various points in this podcast, it checked every box of what happens in most every other episode in a rather stereotypical way. And I don't know ultimately then how effective it is at moving the narrative forward. Here's another one for you, though, Pete. Is Madani truly shaken, or is she perhaps playing a role on Dr. Dumont? I think her shakenness that Billy showed up is authentic. Um, I think she's cagey enough that she would compose herself and then attempt to see what Dumont knows. The theft back of the... Uh, of the dream journal to me, if she knew to look for it, um, Billy doesn't really, haha, I got this back. Right. Unless I'm. Yeah, no, no, he, yeah, he, yeah, he does. does. I I doubt he left it downstairs, you know, in that place. Now, Pete, you lived in New York city. I don't mean to interrupt your question. Uh I need to be clear on something here. Is it all apartment buildings have a fancy, uh, like desk with a with a doorman and a place that you can put the guns you just stole from an FBI agent or is it just or DHS agent or is it her building? Mine did not and mine is now rubble having blown up a couple of years ago. Um so yeah, I, I certainly can't speak to that. So the, all the nicest ones, Matt, have the the um you know, uh, machine gun, uh, repository where you, uh, you leave them on the way out. You know, uh, it's, it's impolite to bring your machine gun up in, in most midtown Manhattan, uh, residences. I was, I was all the way uptown. Fair enough. Pete, what theories do you have? This idea that Frank discusses with Curtis and Madani and Amy at the beginning of the episode after the conversation at his late wife's grave, that he was always going to be what he is, that he always was what he is, and uh, that his wife chose not to see it, um, is really sad. And that he's lost his family and he's still this thing that we were operating under the assumption all along, well, their murder pushed him over the edge. Kind of makes you wonder what would be happening with him if they were still alive. It's an interesting point that you raise, and part of me wants to respond with a little snark to say, oh, there's a reason why he's having his alas poor Yorick moment. It's because the original draft 
came in at 38 pages and they were like, we need some talkie scenes where, I don't know, Frank reflects on his nature and other people reflect on his nature. The thing is, and the, the reason why I'm not bringing the snark here is it is good reflection and it is a good question. Obviously, you know, for the fictional, f- fictional Frank Castle, do we wish his family was back? Sure. Is he maybe a worse guy with them around? You know, is he somebody whose demons are not focused on the the different gangs in Daredevil season two and the real, real people who did this to him in, in season one and now Billy and Schultz and all that? Um, is he just a terrible husband, a terrible father, an abusive force on a downward spiral as opposed to what he is now which is this you know which is this attack bird constantly plummeting down but it's plummeting down for the for the little squirrel for the rabbit etc it's an interesting point to ponder i don't know if the episode gives us much in the way of answers uh and rather just plenty of questions but uh good questions nonetheless now hear me out on this next one matt okay is it realistic that a closeted politician would be pushed by other forces to, uh, you know, get engaged to be prominently dating uh, somebody as a beard. Pete, I think that most optimistically, we could have a candidate who is uh, openly gay or recently out of the closet and be judged on the issues. I do think back to when this topic came up in a prior episode, and I know we discussed it. I think it is a, it's a smart bit of writing to say the right would be angry that he's a homosexual and the left would be angry that he had hidden it. Therefore, it's kind of DOA. Therefore, we need to hide the whole thing. I think that little nugget is still true. Um, but I think that what the, what the show is doing is maybe sidestepping what, again, at best in our world would be not much of a factor, although probably would be more than I'm, more than I'm suggesting, but the show is kind of sidestepping that to have the assumption that if they don't hide this, it all is lost, particularly from the right side of the political spectrum as the Schultzes clearly are, uh, reflecting slash, uh, I think outright just using for their own personal purposes. While we've had Billy throughout the last couple episodes uh, twisting the wills of vulnerable former servicemen and uh, now leading a full-on criminal enterprise, we get the opposite of that in Curtis with the rest of the guys in his uh, support group and this confrontation that turns really into his recruitment of them to help ferret out Billy and his guys. Pete, I can't imagine how challenging it is for Steve Lightfoot to run any writer's room, let alone one where they must bring in questions like, well, if we say the wrong thing about veterans, what's the worst case scenario in terms of a PR thing? Hey, if we say the wrong thing about people with guns, what's the worst case PR or worse, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so is it possible maybe that Curtis's good, you know, good army of veterans can counteract story-wise the bad army? Maybe that's a discussion that came up, but regardless of its genesis, I like that there is this reminder 
in what hopefully we know in our hearts, but there's the reminder in the story that all of these veterans are not profoundly broke men that that can't be trusted. There are guys too that are still dealing with the after effects and trying to make their way in the world and get some help and get some 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 fellowship from people who understand. But the minute that there's badness, they want to help out and they want to help out in a big way. Not broken, always trusted, Matt, are our patrons from patreon.com. Yes, Pete, they keep us going, particularly in these cold winter months as we go through the streets making our podcasts, standing in front of oil can fires, saying, yes, Pete, <laughs> we can keep making the way, making our way through another episode of Punisher, which has elements taken from all the other episodes as it tries to maybe pad out the 13-episode order. But, Pete, Punisher is here for us. We're here for the Punisher, and we're so glad our listeners keep us going. Now, Matt, in the month of January, we tied an all-time fantastic geek output with 21 episodes in a calendar month. Uh, I know you had to do your best jigsaw Tetris thing in order to make sure we were able to uh, do that all technically. Pete, it was a bunch of stuff that we recorded talking these variety of shows here and literally the last little bit fit with about three megabytes to go. So proof that, you know, all that support that we get for the cost for storage and bandwidth, it really, really is appreciated, particularly on these high output months. Uh, and, you know, we're just going to continue trucking along as we do, Pete, but it's nice to know that we have everybody helping us out on patreon.com slash fantastic geek. Pete, let's head back to the old podcast though. What are we hearing from people as uh, they watch Punisher as well? Robert T. Frost writes into the Fantastic Geek Facebook page. Hello, Matt and Pete. Here are some thoughts on the past few episodes. Number one, thank you, thank you, thank you, Marvel, for finally giving us some stand-up law enforcement officers to counterbalance all the bad and questionable ones we usually see. I know it's a trope, a well-worn trope, and perhaps a bit tired. Sometimes... We all need to be reminded of oaths we took, the dedication we started with, the belief that we can make a difference in our corner of the world. Number two, Dr. Dumont. I'm still on the fence in deciding whether or not she is a veteran. She, like Madani, could be a civilian who went into harm's way. The shadow box we see has several U.S. Army awards that make me think they were awarded to her father or perhaps her grandfather. In the shadow of box, the CIB Combat Infantryman Badge is front and center. It is awarded to soldiers who serve in an infantry, ranger, or special forces unit that have, quote, engaged in active ground combat to close with and destroy the enemy with direct fires, unquote. The next that drew my attention is the medal that is rightmost with the green and white ribbon that has a starburst over a hexagon. This appears to be a Vietnam campaign medal. Now, this doesn't mean that she is not a veteran. It just means that she did not earn these awards. Till next episode, your friend, Bob. That's some really eagle-eyed uh, observations there. I, I would think with these four episodes to go... 
uh, that we're not going to suddenly have this reveal that she has a military past. I think it was a, a, a viable theory earlier in the season. Um, it'll be interesting if nothing is brought up about that military connection in her past, father, grandfather, herself, whatever it might be, then a even better set dressing job, even more kudos to somebody who's not actor and script person saying, I was in the army too, I understand, you know, to kind of delve into who she is from a set dressing point of view and things of that sort. It's a really interesting take. So thank you, Bob. Uh, I have to say, this is another time I just marvel, pun intended, at uh, what our listeners pick up. I mean, yeah, I'm watching it and I see some medals that Bob is able to figure out what these medals are and further give us that background is tremendous. So thanks so much, Bob. Martina Seidel writes in on the Facebook page, I think David's children were already surrogates, so go by their ages, maybe? I'm guessing, much like you, that the writers simply shift times around to suit their narrative. But they could have gone with Leo, maybe. I think John had better chemistry with that girl. I'm just not buying the whole surrogate father thing with them. We know Jack about how she ended up like this. Does she have parents? Is she running from something? And I feel like Frank doesn't even come across as overly sensitive to her. Him tying her up on the bed, I found really grating. I don't see a problem with Pilgrim killing people. As such, he acts like any other fundamentalist. I mean, they act in the name of protection of their values, I assume. Like, it's not unheard of that Christians kill people, commandments or no commandments. The Crusaders were given special permission in the name of all that is holy, which is where we get the discourse over just wars from. Fundamentalists ultimately rationalize these things. I've been reading about the Unabomber, not that he was a fundamentalist or maybe he was, I'm not sure, but he regarded the people he killed as those he failed to kill as part of an experiment. They became very abstract. And I'm not saying this is what Pilgrim does. I'm saying we have to uh, we have ways to put human life as a lower priority than the cause. I assume that Nakazat was mentioned in the episode. Anyway, keep up the good work. Well, yes, that episode title, uh, it, it definitely was mentioned. It was mentioned as the Russian word for punish. Uh, or to punish well we mentioned it it didn't come up in the episode it wasn't said in russian no pete how can people be like martina and bob and be in touch with you to talk about the punisher you can find me on twitter at peter p-i-e-t-e-r-j-k-e-t-e-l-a-a-r 10,333 followers can't be wrong and while I'm personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, do be in touch with the podcast. Comment on FantasticGeek.com. Check us out on Twitter, on Instagram, on Gmail, where we are Fantastic Geek as well. But wait, Pete, there's more. Facebook.com slash Fantastic Geek. All one word with the PH. Like it like Bob. Like it like Martina. Like it like today. Pete, we will be back on Friday to talk 
more episodes of The Punisher. Here we go, Pete, only four to go. Can't believe how fast things are going by, but certainly, as we explored this episode, plenty of story ahead of us. So with that, Pete, I will say adios to all the listeners and give you the final word. I'm not the one that dies, kid. I'm the one that does the killing. <laughs> <laughs>